welcome to the DeMarco Polo Show here on 88.9 KUCI-FM in Irvine. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and you are listening to my summer show here at KUCI, uh, broadcasting from the campus of UC Irvine. Today is August 27th, 2012. And this show will go on for a few more weeks, and as of October 1st, I'll just be back to my one show, which is quite enough, Writers on Writing, which is every Wednesday morning at 9 through September, and I think probably in October we'll take this 5 p.m. slot, if that's, if that's possible, if that works out. In any case, this show, the DeMarco Polo Show, is about undiscovered people and spicy issues with a focus on Southern California. And today, my guest is in studio, which is always fun, Glenn Langor. Hello. Hi, Barbara. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you could be here. Glenn um, is here to talk about his book, Roll Call, which he started writing from prison on drug charges, and um, is is an Orange County guy, and um, also has something like seven books in print, and started writing in prison on drug charges, and, and... has a lot to say about, you know, writing, writing when there's nothing else to do and uh, what you get done, which is, uh, you probably get a lot done, right? I mean, you know, we're out here going, ah, oh, what am I going to do? I don't have enough time. He's an usher at his church. He loves to reach out to other prisoners to help them turn around their lives. And um, he is also offering his book free from the Kindle store to those who can't afford it. And you can reach Glenn at rollcallthebook at gmail.com and his website is lockdownpublishing.com Tell me about the book. Tell me about Roll Call and how it began. Okay. um, Like you said, I was fighting drug charges and uh, I just felt like I had so much material in my head um, to take you further back when I was a freshman in high school from a broken home. My parents had a divorce, and I didn't respond well to that. How old were you? I was like 13 years uh-huh. old, sure. and I was a f- avid baseball player, and my dream was to play baseball, and I was really good, and the uh, varsity coach was waiting to see me, but by that point, I was so pissed off that I basically ran away from home, and I got into drugs, and it started off innocently with marijuana, and turned into more of a money-making obsession. And my brother ended up running away from home. Was he older or younger? Younger. Younger. And so we lived on our own, and we were surfers selling pot. And were you out here? Yeah, uh-huh. San Clemente. Uh-huh. We ended up going to San Clemente. And so we basically were doing it our way, surfing. We got a couple dogs, and life was good. And we were able to make money. We started off in a guy's garage who was, I wouldn't call him a smuggler, but he had a lot of marijuana. Mm-hmm. And so I was really ambitious. And I went toward Mexico and obtained a bigger dealer to have him deal. And it just took off and there was money. And it was basically like, nana, 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 to my dad. You know, sure. that he was saying that we'd never... You know, he was kind of negative over the divorce in the very beginning. Were you in touch with him still? Did you get not really, not really, not really. And so we were doing it our way, and the police interrupted us. And at the time, I was 18, and my brother was 16. So he went to juvenile hall and was not able to get bailed out. 
and he did his sentence. He ended up having to deal with the courts and did his sentence. I, on the other hand, being 18, I was released on my own recognizance, mm -hmm. and we made it back to our uh, rental in San Clemente, and we had a fi I had a five-day notice to vacate. I was without my brother. I was so empty and alone and scared, and I was also even more mad because the the police had just taken about $20,000, and so I was desperate. And then I fell into the wrong crowd even worse and was even, you know, just really frustrated. And I m met a guy who was selling speed. And so trying to recoup this money, figuring I'm going to go to jail as this progresses, I got involved in selling both speed and marijuana. And it, life was, that was the worst decision I'd ever made and became addicted to that drug and the lifestyle. And to speed it up for the next six years, I ended up doing business with outlaw bikers out there in San Bernardino because that's where the speed was being cooked. Right. I met, you know, cartel dudes, Mexican mobsters, and it's flashy and it's, you know, it's exciting. You, you think you're going to make all this money and retire somehow or turn it into a legal business, and it's just a facade. It always ends in uh, jail, death, or uh, insanity. Mm -hmm. I was going to say madness. Y you know? It's one of those three is where it's going to go. And so I went the hard way for about six years. And by that point, I was trying to invest into a legal business and, and find a way out the business. And this guy who was building custom Harley Davidsons, uh, he, he suckered me in saying, why don't you invest in me and get out of the business? And I did. I put 12500 into his fabrications, which were some pretty incredible custom Harleys. And... It, it was a scam. The money I put into the bike with, was it was supposed to resell, and I'd get my money back and become further involved in his business. Well, he went to the River Run and met another guy. Who what is that? The River Run's a Vegas uh, Harley thing. Okay. And he went out there, and I'm still running amok on the streets, doing what I'm doing, between San Bernardino and Orange County. And months and months had passed. I had a you know, paperwork and a portfolio representing his two motorcycles. One, I had money in. And I started to get the feeling that I'm being used, taking advantage of the bikes not selling. He came back from the river run with a new partner, Steel Stallion Custom Craft. And they got a, they got a business going in the Irvine Auto Center across from BMW. Hmm. And so I'm realizing that, hey, that bike should have sold by now. And I had some Hells Angels. This is like nine months into this deal. It's supposed to sell in a couple, three months. And my investment on, in return and so forth was supposed to already transpire. So I had some real Hells Angels go in there to purchase the bike that I had the money invested into. And that's when we found out that the bike wasn't for sale. It was a prototype to uh, take orders on hmm. and to Chrome Exchange. It was all polished and you know, these are $30,000 custom Harleys. So I didn't handle it that well at all. And long story short, the guy ended up alleging that I ran into his house and took him to a bank vault and got paid that way and then continued to get paid that way for a while. So I had Orange County looking at me like I was some huge guy. And uh, I sat in the county jail for, for over a year. And the guy had a heart attack and uh, passed away. And they, all the charges fell apart except for a drug charge. So that's when I really started some serious prison time on some high-level yards. And I got out from that three years down the road and was determined to put my 
energy into something legal. Because my brother, on the in the meantime, was you know creating legal businesses and doing really well, and he never got into the stupid drug I got into, speed. And so he started prospering, and I started seeing, okay, that's what I need to do. And it's pretty hard to start over coming out of prison. You know, the prison changes you a little bit, so it's pretty hard to start over. But God bless me. I started going to church. I started a limo business. It prospered. I bought a condo. 9-11 knocked the business in the dirt. I was too fragile emotionally to handle a relationship that didn't work, and I fell back into my old ways and went to prison again. And at that point, I was just so frustrated. And my mom and my dad were both praying for me and telling me to turn what you've been through into a blessing. And I knew I had so much material in my head from the lifestyle, from prison. And I, I did do a lot of reading while I was in prison. And I just realized that, hey, I, I'm going to pop if I don't get this material out. So I, I started writing. That's when I started writing. The second time you were in prison? Yeah. Interesting. So then, uh, what did you do? I mean, how how did your story take form? Because it took form as a novel, not a memoir. Right. And why not a memoir? Uh, because I wanted to get more out than I could with... Mm. A memoir is going to be just me, me, me. I okay. wanted to have something deeper. I mean, I was frustrated with the system that there was... That there didn't seem to be any compassion along the way. Um, there was... I wanted to have a good cop and an overzealous cop and show that, you know, the culture, the society we have going with this tough on crime without any compassion is, is not helping the community either. So I wanted to show a good detective squeezed out of the loop by an overzealous narcotic detective. Later on down the road in roll call, he becomes an internal affairs officer. You see, uh, you see a lot more that way than writing just a memoir. Yeah, yeah, and you, it's a multiple point of view novel. Exactly. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so... Okay, so let's let's talk a little bit more, though, about sort of the publishing. So, did you finish this while you were in prison? I, I did not. I, I, I pretty much finished the first the first uh, writing of it. Mm -hmm. But then I got out, and my dad blessed me right away with uh, an introduction to a writing professor at Saddleback College. And I just sat across from a table from him and just was a sponge listening to how to mm -hmm. rewrite that 700-page novel, and he told me right through the character's eyes, he told me to think of good over evil, and I said, I got that part. Right. And just a lot of what he said I had, but a lot of what he said I, I didn't. So when I rewrote it, I focused on that, and it came to life, and I saw a spiritual context of the drug war more clearly, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so it really helped. So I rewrote it for about nine months. Um, I went with Amazon. I, I, I mean, I'm I was staying at, uh, like, shelters, sober livings, trying to get back on my feet, and going to the libraries. Mm -hmm. And I was reading books on how to publish. I think I read the Publishing Guide for Dummies. Sure. And it was telling me Amazon sells, like, X amount of percentage, up toward 80% of the world's books. So I started studying that, and they offered a pretty good... I also I had offers from publishing companies. Uh, publish America wanted to publish for me. I didn't like the contract. Other publishing companies wanted to work with me. I didn't like the contract. And so I did a lot of reading and studying on the subject and realized, okay, what I have to do is I have to get some, find out if the book's as good as I think it is and get some powerful reviews behind me. <clears throat> so I went with Kirkus Discoveries that Nielsen Media owns and had them review it and was thinking that I hit the jackpot when I got the review from them. 
I want to read that, too. And, and first, I want to say you're listening to the DeMarco Polo Show on 88.9 KUCI-FM, uh, broadcasting from University of California, Irvine campus. And I'm with Glenn Langor, and you spell it L-A-N-G-O-H-R. And the review on the back, which is so nice, we should all uh, want a review like this. We should all be so lucky. Kirkus Discoveries Review says... A harrowing, down-and-dirty depiction, sometimes reminiscent of Stephen Soderbergh's Traffic of America's War on Drugs by former dealer and California artist Langor, locked up for a decade on drug charges and immersed in both philosophical tomes and modern pulp thrillers, Langor penned Roll Call a light fictionalization of his troubled life. The author is not content to tell the story from only the protagonist's perspective. Instead, he toggles the angle like a master director, taking in the stories of American lawmen, Mexico dealers, outlaw bikers, and prison guards, a vivid, clamorous account of the war on drugs. That's quite a nice uh, write-up. Yes. You I must have, like, danced for... Yes. took your wife out dancing or something. Yeah, she was pretty much sitting on my lap <laughs> at the library when we were reading that, just going, yes, thank you, God. <laughs> you know, it'd be great to hear you read just, you know, a couple of minutes okay. from the book. Can you All do right. that? Sure. Do you, want me to, do you want to read from this one? Sure. And, uh, yeah, so it's been interesting on this show while he finds a, a little segment um, to, you know, when I started the show... Back in June, I decided it was, you know, it had to be Southern California people and issues and didn't really think there w I was going to do much with writing and writers on this one since my other show is uh, Writers on Writing and is only writers, only writing and publishing. And uh, this show, we've probably had half and half guests with uh, who are writers who are doing something in publishing. And so it's been, been interesting. Um, okay, you got something? Sure. All right, here's Glenn reading from Roll Call. Okay, this is uh, chapter 132. It's probably 70, 80% through, and I think at this section I was, yes, I was. I was just getting out of prison, and it was, it was preceding the time where I started the limo business, and I was just lost from being in prison for three years on some high-level yards, trying to start back over. So this is where it picks up right there. Sunday came, and I walked to the movie theater church. I walked through the parking lot and saw a man standing in front of the theater. You look lost, young man. I am. I'm looking for the new church. It's right this way. The usher showed me the way. One of the theaters was set up for church. I sat in the back row and noticed there were only about 25 people scattered in the chairs in front of me. There was a choir set up on the stage. They started singing Amazing Grace, and I felt the power of the Holy Spirit washing over me. I studied the beautiful people singing such pure praises and tried to add my voice with the wretch like me. And I felt my voice cracking. The next song was just as pure, and I felt anguish I didn't know. I, did, I felt anguish I didn't know I had stored up, washing out of me, and felt the tears streaming down my face. Another beautiful song later, and I was choking on even more emotions I didn't know needed to be released. The preacher walked out next and introduced himself as Joe Venturella. He had a meek posture and a gentle spirit. I wondered how he could possibly know the depth of the spiritual war of good against evil that I'd seen and lived. Then he started speaking. God, use me as a utensil to get the word out to this flock of your children gathered here. 
I can feel that someone in the congregation needs to hear some encouragement. Tears flooded my eyes again as I listened to him talk of how chaotic the world was in these times we were living in. He painted a picture of the world the same way I saw it. He spoke of how much hypocrisy we see every time we turn on the news. Maybe he did know. And then he prayed. That's great. Thank you. You know, I was thinking as you were, um, as you were reading, well, I was wondering if you had any sort of, did you come up with any kind of outline or plot, or did you do your draft and then you took the class and said, okay, now I have to work it this way so that I actually have a through line and have a dramatic arc? I mean, did you right. consider all that? I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote, I was writing on the back of court transcripts, I started in Orange County Jail. I waited till the case finally was done with Orange County two years later. And I was starting with the back of my court transcripts, writing on the back of it. I threw the first book away, started another one. I waited a little period, started another one. And eventually when I got the, the intro going, I mean, I, I break it down to where you have the beginning, middle, and end. Mm -hmm. And so that's my outline, beginning, middle, and end, set the scenes. And... Uh, so I just kept writing. Eventually, when I did get to prison, I ended up at another pretty crazy prison. And, were uh, you in California? Yeah. They said, yeah. Where were you? Uh, Sentinella. It's on the border of Mexico and Imperial Valley. Yeah. And Why were you all the way down there? Uh, that's just the way it works. If you're level three or level four, you could, you could go anywhere no matter what level you are. But Within the state of California? Yeah, within the state of California. And actually, toward, toward the end of my sentence... Uh, California was so overcrowded prison-wise that they were sending people out of state. Really? Yes, and this was before uh, the Supreme Court ruled that uh, that it was cruel and, and the medical attention was inadequate, and they they forced the release of, because it's just so overburdened in there. It's so overpopulated. So at this prison, um, there was so much war zone going on with the blacks and Mexicans fighting and locked down that I was able to get the best job I needed to continue writing. I got, the type, I got a typewriter in my cell as a package clerk. So now I'm writing on, you know, I'm typing it up, mm -hmm. and it, my writing flows a little faster as I'm typing than when I'm scribbling with a pencil. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how it developed. And like I said, I, I wrote the first draft and then cleaned it up and wrote the second draft after some, uh, some mentoring with the writing professor at Saddleback. So... Um as I understand it, at least in prisons outside of California, computers aren't allowed. No. You're not allowed to work on a computer. Unfortunately not. Uh, I'm finding out that some of the federal prisons have computer mm -hmm. access for prisoners. Uh, unfortunately, in the state of California, there's, n there's really not much re redemption, rehabilitative stuff. Uh, there's no computers. You're lucky if you get good books play chess and you know try to better yourself on your own through reading and through writing and uh through using your mind positively so and where you were um and the prison that you you lived at were you there with with a, you know half the prisoners on there on drug charges were there a lot more violent crimes I mean, my impression is that in prisons in general throughout our country perhaps the world a lot of a lot of the guys and women in there are there on drug charges. It is pretty true. Uh, when I got out, I researched that, and I wrote some articles and some papers through f for school and for marketing my books. And in general, 70% is a general, it's a pretty accurate number of 
drug-related crime per person per, across the board. It's about 70% drug-related. And, and from being in it myself, um, it's mostly drug addicts, poverty-stricken people, uh, trying to fight their way out of poverty and addiction. I mean, you, if you're born Mexican in East L.A., you're probably not going to make it to UCLA. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You're probably going to end up being a, you know, a gang member. And so, I mean, if you're white and you're uh, in the desert and your parents are cooking dope and you don't have right. shoes and you're in a trailer park, right. you're probably going to end up in prison. Um, and then our culture is such that it's so overzealous with the drug war. Consider before, uh, before the drug war was so heavy into arresting everybody, you know, the 60s generation was free love and drugs and, right. you know, a lot of them turned into politicians. Right. So there's a <laughs> stigma with, you know, end up, get, you know, becoming a felon drug related that's pretty hard to uh, overcome. And the state does not uh, offer too much in regards to redemption or rehabilitation. So, so what, what does happen? I mean, you're, you're in there. What sort of training or help do you get? What did, what did you get? What, what did they do for you? Um, the... And is it something you can seek out as a prisoner, or is it something depending on whatever prison you're at? Well, I mean, when you go when you when you're into prison, they they want to know who you are to see where you can be housed. And one of the questions they ask you is, "If you're white, are you a wood or are you a skinhead?" And I'm raising my hand saying, "I'm a white man with impulse control problems. Why do I have to be one of those two? Right. You know what I mean? If you're black, are you a blood or are you a crip?" If you're Mexican, are you, you know, a, a Southsider or a Northerner? Or you, you know, who are you? So right. it's basically a setup, you know. Uh-huh. And, you, you know, as a younger person, you go in there and you're like, well, do I have to be one of those to be protected? That's right. kind of your mentality. So it's, it's, a, it's the wrong way to start it off. As far as the, your question, some, some places do have uh, welding shops and stuff like that. And, you know, you can... Do schooling on your own. You can do uh, courses with Orange Coast College. I had a few friends that were doing that while I was writing, trying to better themselves. So How did they, they do that? Huh? Is it an online? You write it. No, you write and you do mail-in stuff. Oh, really? And okay. So, yeah, you can, but that's on your own. That's right. not the prison offering it. It's you right. researching how to do this. So, for the most part, some of the prisons will say, yeah, we have rehabilitation at the end of it and we do offer some things. But for the most part, it's it's... It's, it's, I'll give it to you this way. Uh, to write, I had to wake up at 4 in the morning before prison politics kicked in, before the noises woke up, before you know, you're wondering what's going to happen today type stuff. So I'd get my writing in early and then sometimes get back to it later in the day. But for the most part, it's, you know, how are we going to survive? I mean, in prison, it's like you have your building and you have the yard, and it's up to the prisoners to decide who's going to control what space, who's going to shower here, who's going to sit at this table who is going to work out on these bars so it's a setup for you know race riots mm-hmm. there's there's people drinking in there there's drug addiction in there so you have to figure out how to control things the best you can and there's just it's just a setup for more uh for it's a breeding grounds really well okay well we're going to take a short break and we have a lot more to talk about so please stay with us and we'll be back with Glenn Langor, his book is Roll Call, and uh, don't go away. And welcome back to the DeMarco Polo Show on 88.9 KUCI-FM in Irvine. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and uh, 
I'm here today with Glenn Langor. His book is Roll Call, and he's in studio with me. We've been talking since 5, and if you're just tuning in, this show will be podcast with the others that um, are on KUCI.org. You would go to KUCI Talk, and you can listen to so many shows that um, broadcast here at KUCI. And this one will join the rest. So here we are again, Glenn. Um, you know, your book today, I looked on Amazon, and in the Kindle store, it's number four in the criminology genre, and it's up there in other genres as well. So what are you doing to keep the book selling? Wow, that's the magic <laughs> so question. So writers could, could take a lesson from you. Well, first of all, the marketing it is a full-time job, yeah. straight up, and... I've talked to other authors that say marketing's the enemy because it gets your focus on it and you stop writing. Mm-hmm. So some of the best marketing is writing another book. Right. You know what I mean? You, get, you need more exposure, another one in the pipeline, more reviews, more chances to be seen and, you know, enjo- enjoyed or you know, they want to know what else you've written. So the best marketing is more books. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done everything I, I can. I've studied everything I can on the Internet. I've joined... Uh, uh, book blogs, they've got a bunch of places, uh, people that are associated, I mean, groups of reviewers, of bloggers, everything under the sun, and you find that all over and over and over again, mm-hmm. and you develop more reviews, and you figure out, how can I gift my book away to get more readers, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, I got really blessed, and uh, like you were mentioning earlier, Grace, uh, mm-hmm. so much Grace, uh, I met my writing mentor and like a life coach, Mr. Philip Duran, who's an amazing author and uh, used to produce a bunch of TV shows in the he 80s. He was my student for a while. Was he? Yeah. So I got, I'm, blessed, I'm blessed with both of you now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he's given me a lot of really good uh, insight into how to write press releases and how to, you know, do the work for, for people and yeah. show them that you have the story behind the story and all these things he's helped me with. And, uh, I mean, other than that, marketing-wise, um, I'll, I'll give you a funny one. I started, uh, some of the powerful people I listened to that have reviewed Roll Call and then the sequel upon release, they told me, hey, Glenn, your, your specialty's prison. It, it's intriguing. Focus on that for a while. So I'm like, really? Okay. Interesting. And, and I focused on it, and I, I started knocking out some smaller ones, race riots, I don't know how, is number one in the U.K. You were just talking about the U.S. Somehow uh-huh. it's sitting number one, and I don't do any marketing in the U.K. It's just sitting there. And, and, and when did that, in the order of your books? Okay, Roll Call's first. It's the longest. Uh, upon release is the sequel. It's normal book size, mm-hmm. right around 300 pages. Uh, the prison thriller series is shorter. Uh, they're novellas. Mm-hmm. And Race Riot is the next one in that order. And that one sit, has sat number one in the UK, and I, can't, I don't understand how. So a lot of my marketing, I don't know what pays off and what doesn't. I'm not a computer genius yeah, that I'm sure. following the links and right. seeing where it's being driven from. Um, but I kept on writing that series. I wrote Lock Up Diaries next, and it's political landscape relating to smuggling, drug debts in prison, and how it affects the, the landscape as a whole in there. Uh, a lot of my writing takes in the uh, the guards, the IGI, the gang investigators. Well, I got to the fourth one in the series. The third one in the series is about the gladiator wars at Corcoran, where they were staging wars between different rival gangs and gambling on it. The fourth one, 
I wrote is called Underdog, and I sent out a press release that Mr. Philip Duran helped me help me with, and uh, I got a response from Sista Soul at uh, a radio station in Northern California, mm-hmm. and she's very pro-redemption, and she's very humanitarian, and she has been, you know, involved in the Pelican Bay stuff that has to do with the hunger strike, sure. and it's a deep issue right there. I won't get into it, but she made me think I'm going to get interviewed. So I sh- I sent her a book, and you know how impatient we writers are. We want it now, and it took months to develop more more with her. So I wrote her into Underdog. <laughs> I wrote her into it. She ended up playing a role in Underdog, and so that's marketing. You know yeah. what I mean? You got to figure out a way to do it. Right. And so I I sent her Underdog, and she's like. Because I, I, she's a black lady in my book, Sister Soul. You'd figure she's black. I didn't do enough research, but I gave her a beautiful part where she was very humanitarian in her efforts visiting a prisoner and finding out some of the abuses that are going on in there and trying to understand the validation process and what the prisoners were actually hunger striking over. Well, I happen to have that info, uh, being in prison and you know, uh, in enough stuff in there to where. I was almost falsely validated. I don't have any tattoos. Otherwise, I probably would have been in solitary indefinitely. I spent about four years in there as it is. And, uh, four years in solitary. Yeah. And uh, so I wrote Underdog and published it, coincidentally, the day after Christian Gomez died in the hunger strike that was at Corcoran. It started at Pelican Bay, and then they started doing it at Corcoran. And really what they're f- striking over for the general public to understand is there's there's a validation process where they use dubious evidence, basically tattoos, secondhand information, and uh, they're validating you to indeterminate solitary confinement. What do you mean validating? Um, they're calling you like a shot caller or a Mexican mobster or a white so a white gangster. So they're forcing you to get a certain type of tattoo to identify you with a certain gang or something. No, they're they're they're. Uh, and I'm not saying that they're always wrong. Mm-hmm. They're right a, a lot of the times. But in my case, um, just for being involved in a riot to preserve myself, um, they they mistook me for somebody who was a gang member. That happened again. And long story short, they start saying that I'm a sleeper for these big white gangs. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying I don't have a tattoo on me. Where are you getting this from? Mm-hmm. And had I had tattoos on me, they can associate, oh, well, that's, you know, associated to this and that. And if they get secondhand information, well, let me tell you, some of the people that are validated in indeterminate shoe are there with dubious evidence, and it wouldn't hold up in court. And that's what the strike was mainly over. And the only way out of that solitary is more dubious evidence. You would have to debrief and say, so-and-so at New Folsom is calling shots, and he's done this much for this, this gang. And that's how you get out, so that guy would get in. Right. So it's a constant cycle like that. Other things that they want is rehabilitation. They want chances to, because you, know, you, you lose a lot of corresponding opportunities to, uh, when you're in solitary. You lose a lot of opportunities that you would have had on the main line to, to better yourself. And so they're, they're asking for some of those things too. So since I knew a lot about it, I tied her into the, the script and she got me on. So this is marketing, you know, the, my Philip Duran's, you know, real happy and seeing it, and it was just awesome. So other marketing things, uh, you take it everywhere you go, really. Uh, right now, uh, I'm also blessed to, to be with a, a really good guy that feeds a lot of the people in the community. He, he works in the restaurant industry, mm-hmm. and he also gets a lot of people work, me included. Mm-hmm. And so, and he's a, he's a genius, too, and uh, we're going to start, we're, we're coming out with a clothing line 
that's going to be associated with with redemption in the books and so we're you know i'm going there too you know mm-hmm. so you have to do everything you can think of sure. to, to market and to get it out there and uh other than that i'll tell you i'll tell you what i'm seeing is book cover book title the right category mm-hmm. these are huge things so uh this plays a huge role in an impulsive buyer sure and then the reviews obviously help but you know these are really important things well to titles are i mean titles are so important and that's why i think we writers just you know we just put so much into the title you know, and it's no it's no small feat to come up with a good title. Yeah, exactly. And there's so many writers, you know, and you know the publishing industry's mm-hmm. changed so much right. with you know, with ebooks. Mm-hmm. And I mean, most of my sales are ebooks. Really? Most of them are ebooks. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of competition. So and I'm I happen to be in a like I don't know if you'd call it a niche category, but I'm in a smaller category. So I'm not battling, you know. Uh, paranormal romance or uh you know some of these huge categories where you just will not get seen right and if you do get seen and you do get going the payoff's a lot bigger because there's so much more traffic but mine is you know a little bit smaller i i I look at it like this though uh the number one rated tv shows on tv are crime related Mm -hmm. you know what i mean lock up raws heavily watched We're fascinated with it. Public's fascinated with it. It's got the good over evil. It's got, yeah. you know, everything that, you know, makes a good storyline. Sure. And uh, so I do feel that I'm in a good position with a unique view, voice, on, on, on from the inside of the criminal justice system out. Mm-hmm. So I think I'm, I'm in a unique spot for that. So th- that's where my hopes are, is that, you know, I can go from where I'm at now to finding out how to get involved in TV or maybe movies mm-hmm. or something, but just mm-hmm. keep writing because mm-hmm. that's the best marketing. When you You're listening to Writers on Writing and oh look, see, Writers on Writing, I'm back on Wednesday. I can't take this anymore. I have to just call this show Writers on Writing, okay? okay. Sorry. It's the DeMarco Polo show, but I'm on Writers on Writing Wednesday morning. And so I'm just having an identity crisis here on Monday afternoon. I don't know. I watch when my Writers on Writing shifts to Monday, I'm going to be saying it's 9 a.m. Wednesday. No, no, it's not. Anyway. I'm with Glenn Langor, I know that, and his book is Roll Call, and I know that too. Um, and I wanted to talk to you about um, what that you started Lockdown Publishing to help other prisoners. Tell yes. me about that. Okay, well, when I came out of prison, I had this, you know, these visions that, you know, God used what I'd been through to tur- and turn it into a blessing through writing. And, and you know what, writing helped me out with was realizing how small and insignificant I was in the bigger scheme of Mm -hmm. things because as a child that went through what I mentioned a little bit of what I mentioned I had all these chips on my shoulders like the community should care what I went through and so writing helped me separate that and uh, um, I think I just forgot what you asked again Um, we were talking about lockdown okay lockdown exactly so the vision so so since I saw it working for me I was thinking that, hey, you know what, there's so much material in these people's heads, and I've kind of helped myself process it, and you know what, I've, I'm now into it to the point where I'm focusing on it. I'm almost obsessed with it. I'm pretty much obsessed with it. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm writing. This is what I'm doing now. And so if we could get some other prisoners some hope, and, you know, and then look, if you take some good examples, sure. and you show that in the media, and you see what's working, 
then you're going to have a better direction than the same old, same old. Mm-hmm. So I came out looking at it like, if I could start s- this publishing company, reach out to other prisoners, inspire them, and, I, and man, I was trying as hard as I could. I was at the Friendship Shelter writing prisoners for four hours a day, trying to inspire them to take what they've been through and turn it into a blessing. And at the time, I didn't, I was getting artwork, I was getting stories, but at the time, I wasn't on my feet well enough to do anything with it. I need to restart that again. I'm getting, I'm a lot more on my feet now. But I'm, I'm looking at it like, if, if we can help prisoners get instructional writing guides, mm-hmm. if we can help them, and that's what they were asking for. You wouldn't believe mm-hmm. how many of them are trying to turn their, and they're, they've tried everything else. And they have a lot of material in their head. Interesting. So, well, it's interesting on Amazon. Some time ago, actually, before your book came to me, I um, because I have, I think I was telling you, I have a, a prisoner pen pal, and um, and he was talking about books that he reads, that he recommends, and so I went on Amazon looking for these books, and there are so many books um, that are well reviewed books by nice. either current prisoners or former. Right. Which is just so interesting. And then he was mm-hmm. saying that there's this, um, in prison, there's all these publications. Right. There's various newspapers and magazines right. that just go to prisoners. I'll, I'll, give you a, I'll give you an idea of what I am aware of. Uh, this really angelic lady, she's got a, she's got a charitable foundation called Books. Books for Prisoners. I cannot remember the name of this charitable foundation, but she basically sends books to prisoners for stamps. It covers the postage. Mm-hmm. And so, roll call, she gave me basically a roll call list when I got out, and that's what I was using to write all these prisoners. So, there are, that, that, that is like good therapy, is reading in there, and writing. It's the best therapy for you in there, and it keeps you, you know, away from dealing with you know, the breeding grounds of the rest of prison. So, Tell me about solitary. Okay. And why were you there for four uh, years? And when you say for four years, does that mean oh, the only person you saw was... No. Okay. <laughs> no, that's that's a very good question. In fact, I just had, back to your marketing thing before I get to that, I just okay. had an interview with uh, Assistant Professor Karamet. I hope I said her name right. And she is... She's, She's here at this school, University of California, Irvine, and her specialty and study is on solitary. Mm-hmm. And I love, I, see, Amazon told me to, you know, they said you have a unique voice. This is what you need to do. You need to get at criminal justice professors. And um, some really good things developed. And um, s- most people think solitary would be one person, and it sounds like it would be. But really what solitary is, is when you are locked down 23 hours a day on average per day in a cell. And that could be, every prison has an administrative segregation called the hole or, the sh- or a shoe. They call it a shoe also. But a shoe is really your term, how long you're going to be in solitary. So for the s- stuff I was in there for w- was group melees, which is basically a prison riot. Um, and some other things related to, mm-hmm. you know, survival. Sure. And, uh, you know, it just happens. And uh, so you're basically in the hole and you're 23 hours a day on average locked down. Sometimes you go stretches a lot further than that. And that's another thing that the prisoners rebel against. When you see TV stuff where they're trying to make the, the guards come in, 
what, when I've been involved in that, it's because we're not getting any yard or any showers. Mm-hmm. And by law, you're supposed to get a certain amount per week, mm-hmm. three showers a week, 10 hours a yard. Sometimes they just don't do it. And they you know, maybe don't, don't have enough staff right. or whatever the situation is. They're waiting on Sacramento to give them a green light for mm-hmm. more staff. Whatever it is, bottom line is there's, you know, there's, it's, it's pretty hard to be in solitary and not get out ever. Mm-hmm. So uh, those are the reasons I'd been there, some of them. And uh, let's see, what was the other question? I can't believe I can't um, remember. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Was it the vision for lockdown publishing? Um, where was I going? I don't know, but let me just say, uh, you have, we have a few minutes left with uh, DeMarco Polo show. I'm with Glenn Langor, and we're talking about roll call and prison and um, solitary confinement. I know one thing I wanted to know, actually, was um, in terms of writing in prison, back to writing again, because I think I was telling you before we came on the air that there was a New Yorker article, maybe six months ago, that... Um, had to do with writers in prison and that you know no one wants to go to prison and yet writers have gotten really amazing work done in prison i mean there's quite a few writers famous writers celine um uh roberts who wrote chanteron i mean there's quite a few writers who've been in prison and got their best work done so was there a difference between being in solitary and writing and just being in a prison cell? And yeah. in terms of writing, I mean, you used a typewriter when yeah. you could versus longhand, but what is that like? Does anybody mess with your writing? Are, are, you said a lot of guys are interested in writing, so did you get support from... I mean, is that something that happens, that you share your writing even with other guys or, or what? Totally. It is totally like that. Um, there's not that many across the board that I ran into, but there were a few that were writing. And But for the most part, let me answer the solitary versus the mainline deal. I'll tell you straight up, uh, I enjoyed when we were on lockdown. Because when you're not on lockdown, there's a lot of heavy politics going on. As before mentioned, who can go where, mm-hmm. you know, just trying to keep your, your people in line and deal with all the rules and regulations and... It's it's a it's a it's a full time job, so when you're locked down, you're like, okay, cool. I'm gonna play chess with my Sally a little bit, and I'm gonna write a lot. And there are, you know, it's a better time. And in solitary, I hate to say this because, for me, it worked out better. But for a lot of people that aren't writing, it's torture. So I don't want to say that you know solitary is a good place to be, but I I I got some benefits out of it. So I guess if you're already able to be alone and and you like solitude it could be okay yes exactly and if you're very extroverted kind of need people right not exactly that's a good point that's a good way to look at it kind of like being being home alone at the desk is one of my favorite things to do yeah but i know others that just go what you mean you (laughs) might not see anybody all day and might not talk to anybody yeah yeah I like it like that. Totally, you get your <laughs> you get your thought you, you get your writing on. You can think deeper. Yeah, no you, distractions. Um, so, uh, so what 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 do you see as the solution for, um, you know, the overabundance of guys in in prison for drugs? Is legalization the answer? I mean, I, I'm going around saying, yeah, legalize everything because everybody's not going to do it just because it's legal. Everybody doesn't smoke cigarettes because they're legal. Some right. people want to kill themselves. Other people don't. Right. Well, that's, that's a hot topic right there. <laughs> I would say the first thing I would say what's the solution is grace, mm-hmm. compassion. You know, f- I want to 
just look at it like this. Most of the people in prison, I mean, the smaller percentage are the the worst of the worst. In my, I mean, I shouldn't be a judge or anything, but child molesters, rapists, murderers, sure. robbers, yes, send them to prison. And that's the way it used to be. Right. But when you send people to prison for smaller and smaller things, we need to focus on grace and compassion. I mean, part of roll call gets into the hypocrisy of, I mean, Orange County, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um the Hadel rape case. Right. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, a lot of the most zealous, overzealous uh, DAs have kids that have, you know, run into some trouble. Sure. So it's like, come on now, Grace, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, there's a lot of kids doing drugs at a younger and younger age. I don't think, you know, sending uh, the, little, the little guy, soccer mom's little guy to prison and where he can turn into a skinhead is the solution. Right. Right. So I think more grace, more compassion. I think that these drug programs, as hardcore as they are, which I've never had, are better, mm-hmm. obviously, than prison. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're too much for an addict that you know can't deal with everything that they want out of it. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely better than prison. Mm-hmm. And so that would be more the solution, compassion and grace. As far as should we legalize drugs or not, that's just too hot button for me. <laughs> I mean, what, I, what frustrates me is I get out and I'm like, well, wait a second. I was only a pot dealer in the beginning. Right. You know what I mean? And I sure. wasn't hurting nobody. And yeah. I had a couple dogs and we surfed and, you know, I wasn't hurting nobody. I was pretty uh, ambitious. And now it's legal again. I mean, geez, you know, that started my whole downward cycle in the beginning. So, I, and I, I hate to say, yes, it should be legal. But I see what you're saying about you take the power out of it. Because when you look at it like it's a spiritual war and you say you can't have that and everybody's rapping about it and singing about it and it's the coolest thing, you know, to circumvent the law and the parents and this, this and that. If you legalize it, it does take that power out of it and does take the the glamour out of it. Yes. But drugs are evil. You don't you don't get you don't get blessed using drugs. Yeah, I'm I'm <clears throat> I guess I'm thinking more about marijuana because there's so much U.S. land that's used in parks to grow pot by, you know, cartels. Totally. And you go, you know, why is this such a dangerous drug then? I mean, it's not, if it's used for various medical applications and, yeah, I mean, pot smokers tend to be pretty benign people. Right. Tend to not really hurt anybody or... I don't know. It's very confused. I yes. think it's very confused. Yes, and, it and, is. Um, it's above my pay grade to decide on those things. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we're at the end of our time. So tell me any last words you have for um, anyone listening, not just writers, but just pretty much anyone. You could focus it on writers if you want or not. Okay. Um, but any last words? or Because uh, you, you've been able to sort of focus in on your your dreams and what you need to do well i would say for other writers out there don't give up the opportunity is huge it's uh it's it's up to you to do it and you can't procrastinate i mean i think i just read something about stephen king said you cannot get become a really good writer unless you write for four to six hours a day (laughs) you have to write so that's what i'd say for the writers for anybody who's suffering from addiction or they don't understand their children going through what they're going through or know people that have been in jail or stuff like that i would say that uh writing and reading might help them uh writing reading some of what i write might help people understand the disease better and understand you know the culture better 
and uh, I just say grace and compassion and uh, prayer and then um, I'll get, I gift like you mentioned in the beginning I gift out um, Kindle copies of my books to whoever can't afford them so would somebody write to you email yeah you email or? me or if they went to if they can find their way to Amazon they can go through my website which is lockdownpublishing.com one okay. word and then on my Amazon page it's got uh, my email address right there where my books are at and uh they could just get at me that way, and I can email them a copy if they can't afford it. Okay. Well, thank you so much no for problem. being here, Glenn. Thank you for the opportunity. Again, it's uh, I've been with Glenn Langor, and his book is Roll Call. And um, you can listen to the show again, and, and remember everything we talked about once we podcast, which should be within the next week. So thank you for being here. And uh, visit us Wednesday morning at 9, right here. Bye-bye.